welcome back into our St. Louis Blues postgame show. We are live here at OB Clark's, the best hockey bar in St. Louis, along with the voice of the Blues, Chris Kerber. I'm Alex Ferrario, and pleased to welcome in our special guest for this evening. Happy to have him here with us tonight. He is Blues President of Hockey Operations and General Manager Doug Armstrong. Doug, thank you so much for taking some time with us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. Well, sometimes the games go the way... You like sometimes they, they don't. How, how as a general manager have you learned to balance the highs and lows of, of, of an individual game? I think just over experience, you you understand that not every every night goes your way. It's doesn't make it any easier. It's certainly still yeah. very disappointing a night like tonight where points are at such a premium and uh, you have a team that you should uh, you know bite based on on what they did at the deadline and where they are in the standings. You should be able to take care of that business at home. And uh, again, we fell short. Do I? How long does it take you to get beyond a, a tough game? By tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah. It, it won't sleep very good tonight. Yeah. I don't think anyone will sleep very good tonight. Uh, as I said, you know, it, we understand the importance of this time of year, and you know, I talked to the coaches after, like that that game we played in the Rangers. When you when you play a good game in New York and you lose, you can accept that because the competition is as good. And right. uh, tonight we didn't give ourselves a chance and. Uh, Unfortunately, at home recently against uh, teams out of the playoffs, we, this has become a, uh, a habit, and uh, you just hope at the end of the day it doesn't, uh, doesn't, it doesn't preclude you from getting into the playoffs. These 82-game these seasons, it really is phenomenal how a good run can set you up real well, a slide can put the added pressure on, and then, you know, it, you know and then, and I said this to Joey at, at the beginning of the, of the game tonight, as we entered the game, I, I said, man, it, like the National Hockey League now, you almost feel like the playoffs are on the line every single game. Like from game one, it feels like those two points are just the next biggest two points that mean everything, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's funny. Even talking during the season, you start scoreboard watching. It used to be this time of year you would right. pop up and see what somebody's doing. Now it seems like it's November, uh, and I think the three-point games mean a lot. And uh, uh, so it, it's a very it's a very competitive league and a very tight league and uh, you know right now you you have to you have to come prepared to play and uh, again tonight we weren't prepared to play at the start of the game and uh, uh, it, it happened you know if you look since since probably the new year the teams we've played at home that we've lost to uh, are about well behind us in the standings out of the playoffs and it's an arrogance that we have about our team that for some reason we can't shake out of it and I look at how we played in Washington the other night. Uh, you, you, you hate to be a team that, that people believe are situationally motivated. And we go into Washington. They're a very good team. We played direct. I th- you know, the number of goals we had, Curbs, were from me to you total right. and distance. Tonight, we don't get anything near the paint. We, we play an arrogant, arrogant game tonight, and it costs us. As, uh, what, what have you found the first few games post-trade deadline? You know, o- over time has shown you whether it be teams kind of letting a little air out of their sails, knowing that kind of the threat of being traded isn't there, or emotionally flip a switch. How, how does it work? I think depending where you are at the trade deadline, uh, yeah. uh, you know, you have teams that are sellers that that basically, you know, are playing with with house money. So my my experience says when you're when you're a superior team. Uh, or you believe you are, the standings say you are, that you have to take the hope away. And they'll say, you know, they'll say, well, not tonight. We'll try again tomorrow. But when you give a team hope 
and you allow them to 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 stay around and, and play longer and right. they say this might be the night that we can we can grab a, a game on a road trip and uh as i said we've done that far too far too frequently against teams uh uh that we we are ahead of in the standings that you know you 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 believe you need to find points in because if you uh, we talked about it after the game like if you lose to the teams that you're supposed to beat you're not going to beat all the competitive teams you're with and and you you're playing a, a very very dangerous game with 20 games left uh just playing when you want to play what is it like as a general manager we'll, we'll flip we'll flip the page we'll flip the page kind of after this one here right but um but just the you make you, you build the roster you build you build a roster, and we'll get into how you build a roster here as the program goes on tonight. We're joined by Doug Armstrong, Blues general manager and president of hockey operations. But then you have to you, you turn the control over, you know, to to the coaches. And I know you've got great belief in the coaching staff, but it it takes a little bit of the the uncontrollable is then kind of back, and you're watching it. And so the way you think things should go, sometimes they do, some sometimes they don't, and it's that uncontrollable factor I think that has to kind of sometimes rise the mercury and and drop it from time to time. Yeah, I think that's when you have to go that old adage, you know, owners own, managers manage, coaches coach, and players play. Uh, When you start, you know, everybody, like the coach is the hardest job because everybody can coach. Everybody in their mind thinks they can coach. Everybody in this bar (laughs) thinks they can coach. You know, managing is a little bit different. You know, maybe half the people think they can manage. (laughs) But, uh, you know... Well, we take a poll in this bar, yeah. it might be more like 70%. Okay. Maybe a normal non-hockey bar, but in this bar, it might yeah, be you're, 70%. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, Craig and I are on the same page. And, like, when we talk after the game, we see the same thing. You know, we, we see a team tonight that, you know, came out, uh, took some, some poor penalties, didn't drive the puck to the net, turned up scoring opportunities that were there, shots on net. Uh, and end up with three shots in the first period, and you and you basically now fed their fire. You know they're going to be competitive for the next forty. Yeah, and and in the end, the the, the way I've always kind of referred to certain games like this is, you've got a good goaltender in Martin Jones, but he hasn't had a lot of success. But when you give a team a chance to have that belief of, we go win twenty minutes. That's the difference. You when, when especially when a goaltender could say, if I could shut them down for one period, you win the game. That's a completely different mindset if they're under siege all game. Yeah, as I said, it goes back to giving them hope, giving yeah. giving them a belief. And, uh, uh, you know, when you come out and, and you you dictate their will, like, again, I, I look against good teams. That Ranger game we played here at home might have been the best 10 minutes of hockey we played to start a game. We, we played below the goal line. We played below the hash marks. We made them play, turn around, and defend. And... You know the shots were ten to one, and, and remember who's had to make a saber was one nothing for them. Right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. On, on their first shot, <laughs> but even if that goes in, you're okay because you know you've set the tempo and the template to have a good game. Uh, you know, I, I was there's I, I'm big into quotes, and uh, Bill Walsh had a quote. You know, uh, uh, good talent with bad attitude is just bad talent. <laughs> <laughs> and and when you play like I we did tonight, I didn't, that's bring it. A pen. I didn't bring a pen, but that might explain radio too. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is a tough. So, what do you hope for on 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 terms of what would tell you that your team is starting to understand that in these final twenty games? Uh, it's just going to be their play. There's nothing we could do now. Like right. our, uh, we've used three of our four recalls because of injuries that we've had. Uh, 
this is our group, and uh, I saw the way they responded uh, in Washington without Vladdy and without without uh, Robert Thomas. Uh, played a really good game. Again, that can go either way. Right. But when you put that on the ice, you just feel that over time, the hockey gods will reward you enough to make the playoffs and, and to maybe do some damage. Uh, but a night like tonight obviously gives everybody concern. And, and again, I'm not. It's not the, the end all be all. It's the, the, one the, game, the, right? The world's not falling apart here. But you, you, you look like Dallas. Uh, I think got outshot 47 to 15 tonight and won 4-3. Well, Canada, they they got two points. You know, yep. we got none. <laughs> so who cares how it? You know that that's the way it went. And you know Minnesota wins in overtime. I don't know how that game went, but they get two. You know, so all of a sudden, you know, in 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 a. In, in a season when points are tough to get, you got to find points. And uh, uh, now we're going to have to come back. And if we're situationally motivated, the situation is perfect for Saturday because Carolina is one of the best teams in the league. Yeah, a, a really good one. We're joined by Blues General Manager Doug Armstrong, president of Hockey Operations as well. I don't know how many people know of Doug's story, but it, it really is a great one. And we're, we're going to get into that after this, this break. We'll take a break and come back with this in a moment. But a Hall of Fame official as, as a father, a, a career that – has done everything from stats on TV to, you know, to working his way up and uh, in a special way. And I love this story, so I'm going to make him tell. But a, a special way to find your first job. Yep. In the NHL, and I don't. I actually want. I wonder if this way actually works anymore. I tried it once on somebody. A little bit different. I was told don't ever do it again. <laughs> so we'll find out. But it's it's Blues General Manager Doug Armstrong. We'll continue in just a moment, Alex. All right, we'll do that. We'll get back after this here at OB Clark's, our extended Blues postgame show. Doug Armstrong, Chris Kerber, Alex Ferrario. We're back after this on 101 ESPN. You're listening to the Blues postgame show live from OB Clark's with Chris Kerber and Alex Ferrario on 101 ESPN. It is our extended post-game coverage. Alex Ferrario, Chris Kerber, and joined by our special guest, Blues President of Hockey Operations and General Manager, Doug Armstrong, as we are here post-Blues loss to the Philadelphia Flyers, 5-2, our final score. And, Kerbs, you teased the uh, the, the great startup story for Doug Armstrong. Yeah. I've heard this as well, and I love this story. I sometimes can't remember this. This cough switch kind of throws me for a loop because in, in off, off, on. Yeah, to off me in. it should be in, on. Hold on, off. Yeah. I don't know. No, now yeah, you're confusing both of us. For a total loop. <laughs> so, uh, for those that don't know, Doug, Doug of course, grew up uh, around the world of hockey. Your dad was a was a Hall of Fame linesman. How did he get started in that? And, and, and when? Uh, I think just uh, he, he played he played uh, youth and junior hockey uh, back in, the, I guess, the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Uh, you know, got into officiating, make some extra money, and... Uh, uh, I guess was good at it and uh, very quickly got into junior hockey doing those games and then senior hockey which was big back in Ontario at that point and got noticed got into the NHL and did that uh, at the NHL level for better part of 25 years was he was he in the NHL pre-expansion oh yeah original six Orig yeah. Or, or, oh, original yeah. six yeah probably uh, 15 years of that wow all trained uh, well and when <laughs> well trained and and really, when, with an original six, there wasn't a need for a whole lot of different officials, were there? No, there wasn't. No, so, there was, so it had to be a small fraternity of guys. It was a small fraternity, and as I said, they all took the train. Yeah. Uh, so you would actually get on the train with the opposing team. They would have they would have a couple of cars. You'd be somewhere else, and you'd go from uh, Toronto to Montreal or 
or Toronto Chicago for a Saturday Sunday. It's that was just the way they went. And then obviously as things got different in the 60s, they started to fly a little bit more. I remember spending a lot of time at the Detroit airport uh, waiting for them and dropping them off. This was probably nobody in here remembers that. You didn't. There was no security. So yeah, you remember went, when you could go pick go somebody the walk there. And, yeah. and, and, and wait for them and, and things like that. And uh, so there was a. But it was a, it was a great childhood. Uh, got to spend a lot of time at the Olympia in Detroit at the Maple Leaf Gardens as a kid. Uh, again, a different era where I could go with my dad. I was probably starting at five or six years old and just he and I and he'd do the game and I'd walk around and <laughs> just, you know you would just I mean, walk around some of the rinks and then and then see yeah, him afterwards or would you go would you see him during an intermission no 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 it was work time yeah yeah no there'd be uh there's a the security guards a couple would keep an eye on me but I'd go wander the rink and you know <laughs> find a seat and Doug Armstrong's night out at the hockey and, game yeah <laughs> you know you wouldn't do that much uh in today's world though <laughs> <laughs> did he uh, or the dad or mom in that sense say, okay, you can do this, but grades have to stay a certain level. Or was it used as a as a motivational reward for you? Just going to school was enough for them. <laughs> 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 like, we, we had a low bar in my house for my education. <laughs> you had a, you had a same math program as Panger then, and we've told yeah, the Panger yes, story, yeah, yeah. story on there. They, um, w- w- when did you first start kicking a can of some just work around the game of hockey yourself whether it be just doing some odd things growing up or what, what whatever it was well obviously you play uh you know youth hockey and then my dad was scouting for the montreal Canadiens at that time so i would go scout or not scout i would go to some games with him college games junior games just to just to get out of the house and things like that and then again it's a different era the reports were done by by hand on triplicate he kept a copy sent a copy into the head scout and sent a copy into the manager and uh, big binders, and I would read the binders. I'd, you know, ask him about skating, ask him about what he was doing, how he was doing it. And I was always fascinated with with trying to judge what a, a 17 or 18-year-old would be. And uh, then I went off to college, and I, I you know, as, as any any college guy, I had no idea what I was going to yeah. do. <laughs> I was lucky enough to find a great wife uh, in college. We got married. I, I moved to Washington, D.C. for a year, and then... Uh, uh, found a job in minnesota worked uh, three years well, i worked with the north stars and then that team did we did such a great job there that team folded <laughs> no it, it got transferred to uh, dallas uh actually the, the reason that it left minnesota was an interesting story we're at the met center and they built the mall of america and uh, the ownership group at that time just wanted to build a indoor bridge to connect the two and the city wouldn't do it so we moved the team Wow. Really? Yeah. Just because they wouldn't connect the... Yeah, he was hoping to get some, you know, right. added fans and, and an easier way. Go to the mall, come over, watch the game. You know, Like, you know, yeah. you've been to Minnesota in, in, you know, December, January, February. That's a long walk across that uh, that parking lot. And then uh, it was funny. So we were moving the franchise. Uh, the franchise was going to move, and uh, we were told we are going to Anaheim. They had just built the building, right. so... Uh, we, were, we were told we were going there, and my wife was a little bit excited about that. And then all of a sudden, uh, there was a board meeting, and uh, Disney popped up. And <laughs> they said to Mr. Green, well, you're not going to Anaheim. Disney wants that. So we, we went, ended up going to Dallas, and it turned out great for everybody. The Ducks are a great franchise. But uh, we got to Dallas. Uh, Bob Ganey built a, built a great team there, uh, had some success immediately, you know, from... 93, 94 to finally winning in 99, and uh, it's been a, a really good hockey market uh, ever since. 
that first job, you're in Washington, and 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 were you being paid for that time in Washington, or was that a? Yeah, no, I was, no, that I was kind married. Of like a, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't paid, being paid much, but I was being right. paid. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, no, we had just my wife and I had just got married, and uh, I didn't really have a job. I thought it was an opportunity to go work for the Milwaukee Admirals, and uh, Phil Whitliff was the manager and team president there, and uh, he offered me a job. And then I, I, on our honeymoon, we went to Washington, and I. Uh, David Poyle, who's turned out to be a very good friend of mine, got me uh, an interview in the marketing and business side of it. So I started there and uh, did work work that during the day, and then did some hockey stuff for them at night, uh, trying to do some video and going to their minor league team, watching the Baltimore Skipjacks with a good friend of mine, Todd Button, who was at the same time. Uh, he works for Calgary now, was getting his uh, his feet wet, and then after that, I, I went out to Vancouver to try and find a job in the NHL with a team. Uh, Bobby Clark ended up hiring me at that point and uh, took me down there and it was a <clears throat> just a different world. This was back in uh, the early 90s so the hockey department was about three or four people and you had to do everything. So I would work with Bob and trying to do some uh, statistics and analyzation for contracts and then I would work with the coaches trying to do some stats and then I would do travel. I, you just did everything and, and it was a great uh, learning experience and then probably the second year Bob... Clark was there for two years and then he went back to Philly and then Bob Ganey became the coach and manager which really opened up everything for me at that point because uh, Bob focused on coaching the team and Les Jackson and I would try and do a lot of the administrative stuff uh, and then fill him in as, as his day ended from, from coaching. Did you have any relationship with him prior with your dad uh, having been a part of the Montreal organization at all? Anything along those lines? Not, not that that led to the opportunity, but did you have familiarity at all? No, no. When I got the job in uh, in Minnesota, though, uh, you know, my dad's contemporaries were Bob Clark, Bob Ganey. He did a lot of games against those guys their whole right. careers. And uh, uh, when I got the job, I gave Bob Clark a resume, and I, you know, okay, but you got to tell the rest of the story though. T- tell everybody <laughs> about about what you did with your resumes, and this is this this was the I love this, this was the relentless part. Yeah, well, I, I ended up. Uh, going to uh, Vancouver was the draft and I, I went to work for the league actually for free I don't know what I was doing there they, they always are looking for people to help out just volunteer stuff yep. uh, check I don't know what I was doing I can't even remember <laughs> but yeah, I took a whack of resumes and every day I, I knew where all the managers were so I would just slide my resume to their door every day just <laughs> figuring they'd you know trip over it one day or something <laughs> and pick it up and Bob Clark actually picked it up one day and he he Read it, saw my, saw I wanted to get into hockey. Knew I came from a hockey background, uh, family-wise, and gave me an opportunity. And I remember him, him saying, and it sticks with me today. He said, uh, "Your dad got you the job, but he won't keep it for you." <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I thanked him, and I, uh, I went to work. And he was a great mentor and a great friend. And uh, uh, and then, so I, then he hired Bob Ganey as a coach. So Bob wasn't there, and then. Just getting getting to work with Bob the first few years, traveling with the team, uh, the coach and, and the support staff would do a lot together. Again, it was much smaller than it is right. today, and so he and I would have a lot of dinners together. He taught me a ton about hockey, a ton about team building, a ton about just just being around uh, uh, the game from the inside. And uh, then when he went from to coach and manage, it, it opened up the door for Les Jackson and I. And Les is uh, someone that. Worked for a number of years in Dallas, and I have a ton of respect for him. He, he cut his teeth in the coaching and then scouting field. So I've been so fortunate to be around, surrounded by, by great hockey people that were willing to share their experiences. 
So I was looking for my first job out of college. I went to the career planning and placement office. This is, this is how foolish this was. And I, and I went to them and I said, okay, I want to be a sports broadcaster. I, I, I want to call baseball or hockey or football, whatever it is. How do I go about getting a job? I figured it's the career planning placement office. And the guy says, he goes, well, have you thought about sending a resume to the FCC? And I realized we're both wasting our time. <laughs> All right. So, so I ended up sending a letter. And through that letter, ended up meeting Doug Kirchhofer, who for a long time ran the Cincinnati, owned the Cincinnati Cyclones in the IHL. And, and, uh, and over the time, while we were trying to get together for a meeting, their Birmingham affiliate was looking for somebody, you know, and he sent the, my resume down to the owner there. And they had a small interest in it. But he says to me, he says, you know, look, you never know, like the Indianapolis Ice. I heard they may be looking for somebody. I just jump in the car, get your suit and tie on, jump in the car, just go drop a, a resume tape off. I said, okay. So I jumped in the car from Oxford, Ohio, and I drove to Indianapolis, just a couple hours, two and a half hours. And uh, and I, I drive to Indianapolis, and I'm, so I go and I ask for the guy, and he's in a meeting. So I said, okay, I'll wait. I sat in that office for three hours. He comes out, and I introduce myself. He goes, why in the hell would you be sitting here for three hours? I go, I was told to. Yeah. <laughs> he says, now I'm going to tell you, don't ever do it again. I said, all right, I'm confused, but here's my stuff. And uh, I didn't get the job. <laughs> I did But not. it's perseverance. <laughs> but it was, it was some level. Well, the ironic part was I was in St. Louis on vacation when the Blues job opened up in 2000. And I had a resume tape at um, Lisa Bedian, who is just one of my favorite all-time people in the world. I had interned for her a couple of times. She was working at Channel 5 at the time, and I had sent her a tape to listen to it for me. And then uh, she had it, but she was out of town. So I had to go somehow. I had to talk myself to her desk over at Channel 5 to find this resume tape, and there was some coffee spilt on it. So then I drove from there to a place where my aunt was working at a, for a printer in Olivet, had her reprinted for me, cleaner, and then my brother was in a front office at the Muni, so I went over there to type up a cover letter. I drove it downtown, and I dropped it off at the front desk at, at Enterprise at that time, Keel Center. And the woman says, well, Jim Woodcock's here. W would you like to meet him? And I thought about that time in Indianapolis. I said, nope, just want to drop the thing off, give it to him. There's a, there's a phone number on it. And Woody called a couple of days later. But I was like, okay, that sounds like I really should meet him, but I, nope, I'm going to say no, not a chance. And I did so then Jim well, calls the house of my sister. That shows our age. We're talking about typing things. Right. I know. I was just a <laughs> I was imagining Curbs typing up on a typewriter. I know. Yeah, it's different than now. Here's my website. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say yeah. it's already yeah. got 15 copies yeah. in your back seat. <laughs> what, uh, what do you mean for you guys? I'll get back into some, some detailed hockey stuff with you, but what do you mean for you, uh, and, and what was it like when your dad was called and told he was going to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame? Well, that was 1991, I think, and I was just starting out, and uh, uh, he called me and told me he was uh, being inducted, and he actually asked me to present him, oh, wow. which was uh, really cool at the time. Yeah. I was very nervous, obviously. I was just starting out. I think part of it is a father, you know, he used it to give me a chance to get some recognition <laughs> around, yeah. around the proper people. He went with Scotty Bowman, so I, we spent time with, with the Bowman family, and... Uh, uh, but it was a it was it was a great experience, and during that whole year leading up to it, uh, people would come and congratulate me for my dad's work, like just congratulating your dad's a hell of a guy, did a great job, and you start to to build up appreciation for really what he did in the NHL and what he meant to the NHL, and 
You know, he was an Iron Man. He did like I think 1,900 games in a row. Uh, wow. Uh, as as a linesman, uh, never I think 25 years, never missed an assignment. I think he did 18 or 19 finals in a row. Like, wow. Uh, again, it, again. Now it starts out there's six teams. Don't going to be that good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but at the end though, you're breaking he, up some melees as a linesman in that era. Yeah. Bobby. Well, the 70s. Yeah. 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 He'd come home uh, with some black eyes or some bruises and stuff like that. And, uh, I'd always say, does that hurt? And he goes, you want to find out? <laughs> that was usually my idea. Just, that that's was my, that was, that's that was when I realized or, management could uh, be good. I was about eight or nine years old saying, okay, not today. <laughs> Leave dad alone. Yeah. But it was, it was, I had, I was so, so fortunate that I, I'd say spoiled now. My dad was a, in hockey, then the summer he was a golf pro. Uh, so he had a summer job and, and you, you go to the rinks and you go to the golf course and it just, uh, a great, a great mother who ran, who ran the show, uh, ran the golf course, uh, and she ran the pro shop for him and, and things like that, and then just got everything organized and took care of my sister and I, and uh, just a just a fabulous upbringing. Uh, he'd have a golf tournament every year. Gordy Howe would come to it, and uh, I remember a story. Or I'll tell you a story. So I was probably nine or ten, and the first few years they had this tournament, and uh, the guys in the bag room would always. You know they do a lottery to get to get Gordy, yep. and then I think I was ten, and my Gordy was not just they were they were they were going to cancel the He said my dad's the devil. I like to catch it for Gordy Howe, you know, this last time, and and the guys that worked for my dad in the bag room were like really like Tim at ten, so they they loaded his golf bag full of weights. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and I'm lugging that thing down the first fairway, and and Gordy's. Look, Looking at it, I said, come, Mr. Howe. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a thing out of Caddyshack. I'll never forget it. And they took the weights out. And, uh, but just How many the, holes after the first yeah, hole? Yeah, after the first after hole, okay. yeah. Yeah, because he grabbed the bag, and he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Let him go till the back nine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was, uh, as I said, I, I was really spoiled and fortunate. As uh, Probably like a lot of the players' kids now, they don't understand it until they, they get old. Because I was just, I grew up in that. Right. I didn't know any different. I, th I thought everybody went to Leafs games. You know, I thought everybody like could go into the locker room or the Leafs locker room or the Red Wings locker room after and meet some guys. And uh, one of my favorite players was Jimmy Rutherford, and now he's a manager, and I work with him. And I would always go and uh, talk to him after Red Wings games, and he'd have uh, talking to the media, and he'd, he'd take out the padding out of his pants and put some beers in there, and he'd be pulling them out. And I just these things you just remember as a kid. It's just. <laughs> Just, I, I, was I was really lucky. Do some of those things give you a perspective on how to handle today's athletes or where to, say, care about something versus that, that matters versus something that doesn't? Uh, yeah, as I said, be, being part of it my whole life, like you, you see guys that, that, that are in the game, that their kids are in the game, uh, they – as a manager, you're, you understand that they know. Like, right. you're, 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 there's not as much, I don't say teaching, but explaining to, to, to a, a guy that's uh, a Sam Gagne, let's say, who, who Dave played for a long time, and Sam was at the rink all the time in Dallas when I was there in Minnesota, and a great kid, you know. And, yeah. and, but now he gets the NHL. He, he knows what's going on. Uh, some of these other guys you have to teach a little bit. You have to work with. You have to understand that they don't know. Uh, but... The world has changed so much, Curbs, uh, social media, oh. what's important, what's not important. I think it's just trying to get the the values of the importance of, of like, 
I'll get to the nuance of how, like time and score. Young players no longer care about time and score. It's it's you know two one. You know we had we had some situations the other night. Like it's dump it in. Like you don't have to beat the guy. Like even like Bobby if, would say, let the coach let the clock be your coach. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Make them go two hundred feet. You know and and proper changes. Like there's you see good teams and Scotty Bowman used to work on on line changes with his, with his team. You know like like yep. you don't see that anymore. It's just the nuances, just the details of of working hard uh, Bob Ganey would always when I learned from Bob he says your, your job as a player is to put the guy coming on the ice in the best spot possible and you can see players that believe in that and you can see players that cheat for one last offensive opportunity they're coming for a change and the puck turns over and they hang out there a second longer then all of a sudden that shift that was 38 seconds is now 55 seconds and if it's a turnover it's a minute 30 in your own zone and you're fishing at it and uh so it's just it's just those little things that you know that's not really answering your question but but the, the nuances of being part of a winning team yeah. haven't changed and and those, those will never change it, it's it's protecting your your teammates to the best of your ability yeah but you knew you, you understanding that was a big part of the turnaround for this Blues organization because you also knew, and, and we've watched we've watched how long it's taken some other teams around the league that have relied on, albeit maybe great players, high draft picks, but the learning curve of the National Hockey League and what it takes to win. You knew that, and you brought in the Jason Arnotts, the Jamie Langenbrunners, the, um, you know, Brendan Moore. You, you brought in the... You know, some of the guys, the Daryl Sonoras, to help speed and teach that process along. And then you knew when you had the coach in Ken Hitchcock that could force that issue. That was some major growth steps for the Berglunds, Bacchuses, Oshis, Perrons, and things to really start to grow into their own in the NHL. Without some level of that type of leadership, it's extraordinarily difficult to learn on the job as a young guy, wouldn't you think? I, I think it's, it's next to impossible. Uh, you know, you can't blame a young player if no one's teaching him right from wrong. And you, you'll see it time and time again that a player comes into the league on a on a team that's growing and they have a bad record and then they pay him eight million bucks and they're mad at him. He said, "Well, yeah. I, I thought everything I was doing was right. You paid me eight million bucks." Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, so it, I just think having experienced players to guide the guys. Obviously, it, it's like the the horse and water. At some point, they got to drink and. And we're very fortunate to have guys right now that can lead uh, the, the, the Scotty Perimich is coming on. Like a, a guy like Falker takes him in and moves him to his house and teaches him, you know, right from wrong, practice habits, you know, you know, injured and hurt. They're different. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <You> <laughs> Big know? different, right? And, and, and preparing to give yourself the best opportunity to have success the next day and what you do the night before. Uh, and and that, that's with all these players. And I think that uh, you, you know, experience is experience and, and you have to have it and, and then you see teams you, you get in, on, into situations curves where you see where if your team is out of it then players do become independent contractors they have to they have a career to yep. protect they have a, a good teams they don't have that they understand that the team if the team wins i win and that's what we've tried to incorporate here uh probably if you go back to well, maybe since I got here, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, we're probably in the top 10% or 15% in points over the last 12 or 13 yeah, years. Right. I don't think we have one Hall of Famer that played for us during that time frame. 
So that is a real, we're in this together. Yeah. You know, we're, we, we don't have a Crosby or an Ovechkin or a McDavid or, you know, even if you look at our cup team, I, I don't know, will we have will we have a player off of our cup team that enters the Hall of Fame? Petrangelo yet to be determined, but right now it's not a certainty. Yeah, yeah, you got to you know, win Norris he, trophies multiple. You got to, right. I, I, yeah, I hope, you know, again, uh, yeah. he, he could, yeah, he, he could. could. Or I might, you know, yeah, yeah. you never know. Yeah. But there's no... There's like, no lock. No, when, like, no lock. when they had the top 100 players, none of that group none was that small group. Well, yeah. see, but I also remember, too, uh, aside from the first trade that, that you made where you acquired the, the, the pick that allowed you to take Vladimir Tarasenko, I think one of the earliest trades, if not the first trade you made, was for actually Matt D'Agostini, and you, dra- you traded a, uh, you acquired, you, you sent the guy who I believe, I think it was, wasn't Ty Ratty, it was somebody who was a second-round pick, and I remember this conversation with you, you said, well, one of the reasons I did this was, I can wait for this guy to develop. He may turn into a good player, but I advanced our team because I know I've got a guy that can play at that level right now. And it was that kind of philosophy that helped push you forward. Yeah, you, you have to, you, I think you want to be honest with your team on what they need to grow. Uh, and, and like one of the things where like scouts, you tell them, get us the best players and then we'll, we'll organize it from there. Excuse me, but the, so when I got here, they drafted Eric Johnson, a scoring right-handed defenseman, then Alex Petrangelo, a scoring right-handed defenseman, yep. then Runeblatt, a scoring right-handed defenseman. <laughs> I, said, yep. I said, you guys have done great things. Now we're going to move somebody because you can't, there's not enough ice for all of those guys. They, they all need to do the same thing to have success. So we ended up moving EJ and got, got you know, different Stewart, players. Shatter, yep. And then we ended up moving Runeblatt for Tarasenko. You know, so, like, one of the things, Curbs, that you'll see right now, like the, the easiest thing to do as a manager is to trade for futures. Like it, it's, you, you, you have a good player, good teams want good players. It's just sort of valuing what, what is best. And it's, is it a first and second? Is it, is it two seconds? Is it a first and a third and a prospect? But when you get all that, at some point you have to make it a team. And that, that's, that's when it, that's when, uh, uh, the rubber hits the road is when those yeah. when 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 you when you get all of that and and I give JD and and Larry Plo and Yarmo a lot of credit they established a ton of talent here and then we were able to to try and manipulate it into more of a more of a team atmosphere than just a talented young players. I will take a break when we come back. Doug Armstrong kind enough to join us. It's our post game show live from Ob Clark's. We do it after Thursday games. With no more Thursday games to go, but we do have one more Ovi Clark show. It's going to be Friday, April 8th. We smartly decided to get out of the way on St. Patrick's Day at an Irish bar and decided to move that one away. So we're doing that on Friday, April 8th. But when we come back, I want to hear from Doug and, and what he remembers about the first trade he ever made as a general manager and what that process was like, or one of the first ones. We'll, we'll, make, we'll make him jog his memory a little bit. I like it. We'll do that in three minutes. Doug Armstrong, Chris Kerber, I'm Alex Ferrario. Our postgame show continues after this here on 101 ESPN. Breaking down the blues. You're listening to the Blues Postgame Show. Live from OB Clarks with Chris Kerber and Alex Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Our special guest tonight, Blues President of Hockey Operations and General Manager Doug Armstrong. And Doug, one thing Curbs loves is he loves the the process of where a player traded turns into in terms of a draft pick. And Curbs, you in, off, off, in. 
Curves, you talked about. Matt. I'm dyslexic, so this <laughs> is not going to work very well for me. You talked about Matt D'Agostini. He was traded to the Blues yes. for Aaron Pelushai. That was it. And you know what happened when they traded Matt D'Agostini? Uh, okay, I, I, I keep going. Give it they to got me. a draft pick from the New Jersey Devils. You want to know what that draft pick turned into? What? Nico Mikola. See, I, I think trade trees are fascinating. <laughs> do, do, do you ever follow back and just look at a trade tree? And, I actually think if I'm the Eric honestly, Brewer one, I do. Yeah, the Eric, I know the Eric Brewer. <laughs> oh, that went famous. <laughs> I think is the is the Wayne Gretzky trade tree from LA still happening? There's one, and Panger would know this from his time, but there's one of them that is like massively long. Guy gets moved through. for a pick in 2024, yeah. and that guy plays for like nine years, and then he gets moved. Then and he yeah, gets, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> the Eric Brewer one. <laughs> I, uh, when do you, okay, I don't know if this <laughs> yeah. is going to be, I'm going to ask you about that first trade, but have you ever, when you made a trade, go, okay, I, not I took advantage of, but 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 I, I got this one, and you told me a story at one point in time about a trade you wanted to make, and, and, and was it Bobby Kane or was it Bobby Clark Bobby that Clark. said, Bobby Clark that said, I'll, I'll take that trade, but I'm going to give you 24 hours to think on it. There, there's some respect <laughs> of the newness for the job there that is, is old school, but but important. Well, that Yes, yes that, that no? Was, yep. well, no, it, it was that we were friends. Okay. Like if, if I guarantee you, I know Bobby Clark well, if he didn't know me. <laughs> <laughs> you would have learned a there lesson. Been, there wouldn't have been 24 hours. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't like, it was, it was, uh, it was going to be a trade. It would have worked actually out okay for both teams. Right. But it was one where Bob just said, you're, it was a contract uh, fight with somebody and and I was trying to cut my teeth and let guys know we weren't going to get pushed around. And he he said, well, hey, it's not your money, so what are you worried about? Okay, good lesson. <laughs> and then he, he said, uh, you know, think this over. I'll, I'll do the trade, but you don't want to just make sure it's what you want to do. And I thought about it for a while, and uh, I said, you know what, I think I'll just keep fighting the good fight. And Ten days later, we signed the player, and he ended up being our, actually our captain one day. So it, was, <laughs> it, it, it was just a – like, he, di he did not do his job for the Flyers right. by any stretch. It uh, would have been a, a good trade for, for both sides, I think, at that time. But it was one where he just gave me advice. Do you – have you paid that forward at all? Uh, yeah. Yeah, not, not to the extent that uh, – but I – like – I, I try and call the new managers and invite them into the group. I, you know, get to know them. You know, I tell them a story. I said, like, uh, the first 10 guys that call you for a trade, cross them off the list. They're trying to pick your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody told me that and, and, uh, about a manager. He said, uh, welcome. He's going to call you in the next 25 hour, or twenty-five uh, minutes. Don't make a trade with him. It's, <laughs> the, it's the old godfather thing. That the yeah. guy that sets the meeting yep. is the one you got to. Yeah. 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 So, but I, I try and just respect to the younger guys i you know try to remember what it was like to go through there go through that I, I again i was lucky because i worked for bob clark and bob gainey and their their tree gives a lot of shade and i got sort of that secondhand uh, respect just because i worked for them for a number of years so there was just that th right if they like him he must know what he's doing and i try and share that with, with the new guys now uh and just say, listen, we're, we're, we're competitive. I want to win. You want to win. But there's a lot of things that, that we can help you with that aren't competitive-oriented. Scouting, personnel, 
hard decisions, how to work, uh, how to manage up, how to manage down. And so I, I do I do try and play it forward a little bit because I, I, I know the guys that really helped me out, Duggar Eisbrow, Kevin Lowe, two guys that I didn't know well, treated me fantastic when I started out. And, and I consider them very good friends now because I remember they would always sense when things weren't going well and give you a call with some perspective and uh, and i have always tried to do that to, to to guys starting out what do you remember about one of the first trades as a gentleman or deals you ever made and and what that felt like that's well, a, a fun story so i i took over for dallas uh i was uh, so what happened was we we won in 99 and so teams want to hire people from winning teams and so i was getting some calls to to move on and bob gainey said to mr hicks i, I think i'm going to work for two more years why don't you just tell doug you're going to hire him we'll tell him he can't interview and then he'll be the manager so they came to me with that proposal i said that, that that's a great idea i don't want to move and so a year and a half into it uh it was february we weren't going very good and uh bob said you know what i, I think it's time i'm going to step down it was like six months before i was supposed to take over and i'm going to fire hitch for you so you don't have to do it and you you can start the rebuild and i said okay bob will you stay around to mentor and and be my advisor and uh he said sure so we go to the first so this is february so march is the trade deadline and i'm doing a deal and we're not going very good and we have two uh hall of fame left-handed centermen in newendike and madonna and uh, i call lou lamorello and all of a sudden he's ready to move on from Jason Arnott. So my mind goes, all right, we'll give Neuendijk, uh for Arnott. And we're, we're going back and forth. We're going back and forth. And then, like, Lou, as he always does, he calls me at the end. Why don't you include Lagerbrunner? And I'll give you a first. And I said, well, I don't really want to trade Lagerbrunner. And then he, you know, Lou did his job, and he got me thinking about it. And I, I saw the logic in having a first, and I can move that, at, you know. So we're, I'm going through this whole thing, and, so that's my first trade. And so I get to the trade deadline, and there's about an hour before the deadline. And Francois Giguer is our assistant manager, and Guy Carbonell was with us. And so we're sitting at a, at a, at a Bob's old office, my new office. So I'm behind the big desk, and Bob's on the other <laughs> yeah. side. And uh, the trade deadline's at uh, 2 o'clock Central, and so it's 1 o'clock. And Lou calls, and I said, I'll get back to you. And I said, well, what do you guys think? And Bob says, I know what I think. I'm going to take these guys and we're going out for lunch. I go, what do you mean? He goes, you wanted the job. You have all the information. You have to make a decision. And they got up and they left. And I was sitting there and I turned white as a ghost. I was like, you got to be freaking kidding me. <laughs> no, like, Bob, this is your call. You're the manager. I don't really want this job. <laughs> he, he grabbed your support staff and said, come on, fellas, yeah, I'm yeah, buying lunch. Yeah, it's time, it's time for you to do your job. Wow. And we ended up making the trade and uh, – you know, I, I felt so bad. Joe Neuendijk, uh, who I had the utmost respect for, won the Conn Smythe uh, for us in Dallas. And Jamie Langbrenner, who, who I consider a good friend, who I brought here, uh, yeah. not because of a friend, who was a heck, heck of a hockey player. Uh, and, and I did that and brought in a really good right-handed centerman in Arnott. It all worked out at the end. Uh, they went on to win a cup. I thought that, so the next year, we had a really good team in Dallas. They had a really good team in Jersey. We were we were heading like this to, to, to play in the finals. And then uh, G. Garrett beat us. And so Anaheim went to the finals. And 
I thought that would have been interesting. <laughs> because they, they didn't, you know, as a players, you know, they had won a championship in 99. This was uh, 02, or yeah, 02. So they, and they had built up so much credibility. It was a hard trade, and I look back. So that was the first, my actually first one, and the, 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 my biggest one that, uh, at that time, uh, or even going forward for another decade. And it, it was it was hard, and because I really respected Joe, and, and Joe was actually a neighbor. Uh, we had just moved into a house, and he had just moved in like two days before, and I traded him, and it, it so that, that 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 one, there's so so many different veins that go off of that trade. A, moving a, a guy that won the Conn Smythe, moving a neighbor, moving a contemporary, we're both the same age, yeah. you know, Bob, and, and that saying, like, you wanted the job, you make the call. Did, <laughs> did, it, build, did it build early scar tissue enough, I guess, to, to give you the courage to say, okay, if if I can make that move, essentially breaking up a cup-winning team, and then and then you had a good team the next year, as it turned out anyway. But did it did it really advance some of the courage to say, okay, you know, a guy that at one point in time maybe you felt is a guy no, we're never going to trade, is never the approach to look at it versus looking at the scenario when it arises. No, I learned that from Bob Clark and Bob Ganey probably when I started in 1990. That the job of the manager is to do what's best for the team, regardless. Period. End of story. It's not about, you know, you you you, they, you need to be polite about it. You can't be arrogant about it. You can't be flipping about trading people. Once once you become, it's non-emotional to trade somebody. You're you're uprooting a guy's life. You're uprooting his kids. You know, so make sure you know what you're doing when you do it. But if it's good for your franchise, you have to do what's good for your franchise. And I've, I've tried to make those decisions uh, in Dallas. Some work, some don't. I tried to make them here. Some work, some don't. Uh, uh, you know, in Dallas, Darian Hatcher was our captain, and we let him go over a contract. We let David Packers and Petro go. And it's not that you don't want to sign them. It's just you can't find a common ground where they feel they're getting what we need, and I feel that I'm doing what's best for the franchise. And... Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, but uh, I always, you know, I, when I talk to Mr. Stillman, like my job is to do what's not best for you as the owner, but what I think is best for your franchise. And when you stop thinking that I'm doing that, then you'll get a new manager. That, that's sort of how the game works. Right. <laughs> you know, but until that time, I want you to know I'm always doing what I think is best for your franchise. Do you lose sleep over decisions? Oh, yeah. Actually, you don't lose sleep because you don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, Fair point. point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, there's 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 a lot of uh, sleepless nights, tossing and turning. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm lucky. I have a great wife that uh, she gives me my space and she's my sounding board. And you know, she's not a you know she never had seen a hockey game before we met, but now she's an expert, which which is <laughs> nice to see. <laughs> what's it, the what's What's one of the hardest trade negotiations you've been a part of? A trade negotiation or a pl- like a contract negotiation? No, trade. Like, like trade. Uh, in, in terms of uh, one, one that, that took some ebbs, some turns, there was some real go back and forth, and eventually a deal got done. I would say the, the uh, one with Buffalo for O'Reilly, that, that yeah. lasted, it seemed like, forever. Uh, because the, you, like anything in life, if there's a deadline, it's important. And the deadline for the O'Reilly one was at the draft. Because a draft pick without a name 
is more exciting for somebody else than a draft pick with a name. Right, <laughs> you know? that's right. And so scouts get excited when, when like a, a scout doesn't get excited when you trade for somebody else's first round pick. They want, they want their guy. And so that, that one was one we worked on right at the draft. I thought it was going to happen at the draft. Uh, then it evaporated. And then we, we got to free agency. We had signed David. We had signed Bozak, you know, and then I, I, I called Mr. Stillman and I said, if you're okay, like, again, I'm spending your money, like, like it's not mine because it's not. Yeah. And, and this O'Reilly had this, like, like we're going to trade for him today and you got to send him a check for seven large tomorrow. Like, that, that's, that, that was why the trade had to happen that day because he was owed a signing bonus, I think, seven million the next day. And Tom said, well, if you can make it work, you, you have my blessing. So we went back to work knowing that if Buffalo hadn't traded him by that night, they probably would have kept him all the way through the next year to the deadline because they'd paid all that money. Right. You know, and so we worked at it and uh, we, we hummed and hawed and went back and forth and we finally got something done. And uh, Jason Botterell, who it's, it's, it's such a small world. So Jason was a first round pick of Dallas when I was there hmm. and he, when he, he did some work for us when he when he stopped playing and then, then he went on to be a manager so we were friends and I'm so happy for Jason now watching Cage Thompson yes. score 30 plus goals is that he had vision and this trade was made on vision and unfortunately for him he's not there to see that through but like ev everybody wants to instant analysis uh, analyzation on a trade but it doesn't happen that way and we got what we needed and we're still getting what we need, and, and we're excited. We wouldn't do it any different. But I'm not sure he would do it any different now. Like, he had a player that, that it was time for, for a change. He got a top young player, and now that top young player is watching. I, th I think what we all struggle with, Curbs, is that we want 18-year-olds to be 25-year-olds. That's right. And they're not, you know. They're, they're just not. And so nobody wants patience. They, they want... Well, it's a bust. What do you mean he's a bust? He's well, like tonight's 21. game against Philadelphia had Farabee and Frost, who were the two first-round picks that the Flyers acquired in, in the shen Letera trade. Yeah. And look at how many. And, and that, that's the challenge. Like, when I look at this past trade deadline, for example, and you start seeing the prices of draft picks that were paid and, and traded for players. And uh, just because a team isn't willing to give up three years of draft picks doesn't mean they're not going for it now. But you also have to realize, like, any one of these draft picks, even even a even a tenth overall pick, in, in the case of Owen Tippett, the tenth overall pick in, in 2017 that has impacted, you know, Florida a little bit, is still such a prospect here. And we're five years after he was drafted, that the impact of those draft picks impacting a team and moving forward is is, is one of the challenges here, where it's impossible to grade some of those trades right off the bat. Well, it is, and and and. You know, people don't understand when they say, well, it's time to rebuild. Like, you really? <laughs> <laughs> because, like, a rebuild, like, Detroit has missed the playoffs six years in a row. Right. Six. That's the Red Wings. And they have two players, to sh like, that are really coming on right now out of those six years. And they're going to have more coming. But that's a, it's a 10-year process if you want to do a rebuild built through the draft. And... Usually rebuilds are great for the next manager. <laughs> it's usually the third coach and the second manager that reaps all the benefits of a rebuild. Well, this is why this is amazing. I, I looked at 
When we played Montreal that last time we looked at this, now the last couple of years, a little bit unique, the way the playoffs had to be done in the bubble. I think Montreal probably misses the playoffs the last two years if it weren't for COVID situations. Yeah. However, we can only live in the world we're living in, and they made the playoffs in both ones and then go on that, that great run. Over the history of that entire franchise, they have only missed the playoffs three consecutive years two times and have never missed the playoffs four consecutive years. That's crazy. Yeah. And and, and then that's that's so much harder. How, how is the how is the the really the true salary cap era now that we are slowly moving up to 20 years on it? So we're what, about 17 years into the salary cap era to 04, 05, 05, 06, about yeah, 15, 16 years into it. Has uh, it, is there still some learning curves going on, or is it, it pretty clear how things need to be managed? Uh, I think there's always learning curves. I was fortunate when I started uh, in, in 90. It was the pre-cap era. And when I the first three years in Minnesota, we were a small market team with not a lot of money. Uh, one year we went to the finals. We had 66 points. The next year we had 68. Wow. <laughs> so wow. you went on a good two-week. Like, we were in Montreal, basically. Yep. Yeah. You know, you can't get fooled for for the, the six months work by the two month run and uh, but then I went to Dallas and we had Mr. Hicks bought the team and we had a like our payroll in Dallas is what it, ours is here now 20 some odd years later yes. you know yeah. Mr. Hicks was just like whatever you got to do go do it it was St. Louis it was Detroit it was Colorado and it was Dallas and it was a, it was a arms race every year you know you get Gretzky, we'll get Hall. You get this guy, we'll get that guy. You get Chelios. Well, we just saw the Atlantic Division basically do at this yeah. trade deadline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and uh, but with the, then the salary cap came in, and, and I thought with the salary cap, w w the way I viewed it and the research I did was, you had to be, and I was lucky because I worked in Dallas with Jerry Jones, and Jerry Jones had had a saying that that I've always, my money has no emotion, and I think as a manager. It has to come down to your money has no emotion, meaning huh. you have to make decisions that can stand the test of time. And before you could you could give a guy a contract and let him go off into the sunset, overpaid maybe by 40% for the work that he did before. Now, if you're overpaying, you're you're underperforming, basically. Right. And so so we learned we learned how to make harder decisions quicker as managers and now the flat cap has has taken the teams that allowed their that allowed Gary Bettman's good job as a businessman to outrun our bad decisions as a manager well now with the pandemic your bad decisions your bad decisions they don't go away and they're not going away for a while so a flat cap really levels out the playing field of of you can't make big mistakes and I, I don't judge other managers, but there's going to be some franchises over time that are going to go into a full rebuild because they haven't had any picks for a number of years. And they, they might have great success. They might have none. Like, again, this isn't a Tampa thing. They've, they've won two cups. So right. they, they haven't made one bad decision in two years. You know why? Because they've had two parades. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. So they've yeah. made none. <laughs> and, and, but now people, you have to live with these decisions of, of moving futures. And I look at the, the Boston trade where the most was given, but they got a player for eight years. Yeah. So to me, 
that's the there's not a lot of there's much less risk in that deal because if you're Don Sweeney and the Boston Bruins, you're saying, okay, Charlie McAvoy, Lindholm. Let's say Lindholm hits the wall in six years. Okay, okay so you've had six good years with right. Mac. Like you can win a lot in that frame. You know, some of these other ones where you're getting six weeks. Like, again, I'm not telling the stories out of school. Yeah. Toronto, Tampa, Florida. One of those teams is going to be angry in 13 days after the 16 teams that miss it. Oh, no, that's <laughs> right. Angry. Yeah. And then another. Because there's bound to be a first, there's a first round well, loss in there. they're going to play each other. Yeah. yeah. That's and, right. And then if the top seed doesn't, then somebody else is going to be angry. One of those three. So one of the, two of those three teams most likely are not going to make the semifinals. And you gotta you gotta live with you gotta live with the decision, and if you're the one that makes it, what a great manager you were. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got one more yeah. segment with Doug Armstrong. We'll come back. Have it and wrap it up with him, but some fantastic insight for us here. No Alex. doubt at all. We'll come back and uh, close things out with Doug Armstrong next year on our extended post game show at Obi Clark's here on 101 ESPN. Is the Blues postgame show live from OB Clark's with Chris Kerber and Alex Ferrario on 101 ESPN? Get tons of text messages and tweets just of the great stories we're getting here at OB Clark's with Blues President of Hockey Operations Doug Armstrong, voice of the Blues Chris Kerber, Alex Ferrario back with you here every Thursday Blues home game, although we rescheduled last week's because of St. Patty's Day, so April 8th. Is our yeah. final one of the regular season here at Obi Clark's. You, you know why Doug is the president of hockey operations and I'm the broadcaster? He, he, even after this, he pointed to my remote box to push the button. <laughs> he knew <laughs> it. He, he, he knew it. What, uh, how, how much fun do you have on a daily basis just enjoying the world of hockey? A ton. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, quite, I go to bed with a smile. I wake up with a smile. It, it, haven't worked a day in my life, you know, and and I don't know if it's stress. Like I, I, I just I love working with the people I work with. You you know me. I, I'm not yeah. an overly friendly guy. Like I'm not outgoing. I'm not the the life of the party. But I, but I enjoy watching everything. I enjoy being on the team planes. I, I I love being in the locker room and watching the interaction with the guys. I I love talking hockey with the coaches. I love calling you know ken hitchcock and getting his perspective talking to other managers i love the relationships that i built in hockey so i am the luckiest guy again i and and also I, I again not just saying this you know because he's the owner but mr stillman like dude i hear some of the horror stories that managers have to deal with with emotional owners and uh mr stillman's been a rock for this franchise and i i, I think i know the people in st louis know how fortunate yeah. they are to have a guy that spends to the cap, that does what he does to the arena to build it, that does what he does to, to grow youth hockey. But he's demanding, and, and that's what you want. Like he, he, he has an extremely high standard of excellence. And I, I really appreciate that because he, A, he, I, I don't give him excuses. He doesn't want to hear excuses. He, he wants results. He's not a... He's not a, well, tell me why that. It, it's just get it done, and I love that about him. He, he told us, so he joined us on the last show that we did here, and, and he characterized your, the relationship of the two of you by talking about how you had to learn 
how to communicate with each other and the expectations of of the roles because he does understand the game of hockey and he wants to know and, and feel a part of that but he doesn't want to want to step on toes and and he and he said that over over the years you guys have really learned and developed that relationship of of how to communicate and the expectations and then that synergy has been that much better because of it yeah i started out with again it's just my experience with mr hicks mr hicks was a, a multifaceted businessman and hockey was a small part of it. He owned the Texas Rangers. He owned Liverpool. Uh, he owned tons of companies. Like, we went three times a year. And, you know, it was, you got to do better. We didn't win the cup. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. here's the money. Go to work. And then Christmas we'd meet. And then where, where Tom was much different, he he wants the nuances of the game. And and at the start, I was, I was more like, like, I'll manage the team, and you own the team. And then I realized... He owns the team, so I manage. I manage the way he wants. Right, <laughs> and and it, I I really enjoyed it. And I I know you've met Mary, his wife. Like she's she's such a grounding force. I think for for all of us, like she she's got a great perspective on everything. And I enjoy talking to her. I enjoy talking to Tom. I, I just we have found a really good synergy, and uh, it's one of those ones where when it's sort of like where Ken and I were at the end where I, where I had to let Ken go and we stayed very good friends. When and that was about as emotional, I think, yeah, publicly as we've ever seen you when it comes to a decision. Yeah, my wife's never seen that. <laughs> <laughs> she, has, she had the video. Of it. <laughs> she goes, Where's this been? Yeah. This is your son, Blake. This is. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> He'll be fine. <laughs> no, but, but I, I think when, when, you know, ultimately if Tom ever has to make it a hard decision, you know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm not going to high-five him, <laughs> but yeah. uh, but in a week or two later, we'll go out for a beer, and, and our friendship will be right where it is today because that's how much respect I have for him on how he's treated me and uh, and our family and the St. Louis franchise. And I, I love the way he cares. He cares. He, he describes it as he's the steward of the franchise, right. and there will be somebody after Tom. Tom's not going to live forever, and he's not going to own it forever. But he believes his job is to steward the franchise and my, and. And that's where we have really great synergy, that we work for the fans. Basically, we work for the fans. I'm going to tell this story, and I didn't tell this with him on here because I didn't want to put him on the spot, but now that he's not here. <laughs> the previous group, when, I, when we when we introduced Tom at an event and stuff like that, because he did some public appearances and stuff, I had to introduce him as a minority owner. I had to introduce him with that title. And and it, it never, never fully seemed fair. With Tom... Nobody is introduced that way. He's not introduced as the owner of the team. He's introduced as the chairman yeah. of the St. Louis ownership group. And and that is the way he looks at it. And I think that's a that speaks to a whole top-down culture of how things yeah. uh, are expected with him. Have you uh, over the years have you gotten to know guys like like John Mosaylock or general managers from other sports and, and been able to adapt certain things from them to your philosophies? Yeah, I got I got to know uh, I don't know Mo real well, but we yeah. do talk. I, I appreciate what what he what he does uh when i got here we were the little brother by a lot of years <laughs> a lot, that's right a lot of yeah, years yep. yeah and we we've basically been adopted we're a little bit closer to to, <laughs> to the same age <laughs> but uh i i like talking to mo it's, it's it's just a different animal i i've been to his office he's taught me about the hierarchy of their system triple a double a development league and all that but we don't we see each other we're friends yep. uh we don't socialize a lot together but i a, I just respect the way that the Cardinals do their business. 
so I try and learn from that. I do, I do like to read a lot of books uh, about different managers, you know, whether it's in any sport, you know. Uh, I, I find that just just picking up a little tidbit here, a little tidbit there. I, I read one on the Atlanta Falcons now. I don't know what book I was reading because they, they haven't been good forever. <laughs> but, it, but it was one of their coaches. And, Will you cut that for Andrew? Yeah, no, I'm going to save that for Shelter. Shelter's Sorry. a huge they, no, Super Bowl they fan. Have to, they, one of the afternoon hosts is a huge oh, yeah. uh, Atlanta oh. Falcons. We and, butcher and them I, all and, the time and, for and that Please Patriots. don't replay that. I'm sure they are good. I don't follow football Oh, no, close. we butcher <laughs> them all the time for that Super Bowl game where they, they choked in the fourth quarter. I think they had a lead in that game. Oh, yeah. It? <laughs> it was like 28 to 3, right? Oh, We're yeah. clipping that for this them. This is the whole <laughs> segment. Yeah, here it is. Doug and Jamie Rivers, Anthony. Jamie Rivers will have a oh, hit yeah. this one. Uh, but they, yeah. they, they had, I, I'm not sure. But it, there was a, a coach talking about trying to incorporate the senior players to make them feel good about themselves on the team. And it, it made so much sense to me. So one year we had it was called the 700 Club. And it was Steen and... Uh, you had to play 700 games to be in the club. And we went out for dinners and we talked about the team and about the wise room and what we could do different. And I picked that up from of, a book. Of only, of only the players that had played 700 games or more in the league? Yeah. Wow. No, on our team. On our team. Yeah. On our team. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so we call it the 700 Club. You got that from a book. I got, I, I, well, not, not the 700 Club, but, but it idea, was just about the, the idea. idea of having a leadership group. Yeah. You know, you want to, you want to incorporate... Like, at, at some point, when you're when you're a veteran player and you you have a different role, you you've lost your star status, and it was a way to to let those veterans know that we needed them to make sure our culture was correct. And so, coach and I would go out for dinner with them, or maybe just a few beers and and get their ideas. Okay, like how's the wagering? What's going on in there? How's our team travel? What can we do different? How, how, how are we dealing with our marketing people and all that stuff? Because they have that wealth of experience. And so it's just those little things that you pick up over time that you can incorporate from, from different organizations. That's a, that, that one is that's a fascinating one. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So in, in the end, can you, can, you tell the, can, can, can you tell the story of what we're – I thought we were trying to sign Shane, not Wayne. Are you comfortable <laughs> telling that story now? Can you share that one or no? It's okay yeah. if you don't. I'm gonna I'll just you tell me. Uh, yeah, I can tell. It's a, it's a go. It's been yeah. long enough. And Shane, yeah. Shane Charles is a really good friend of mine. Yeah. And, uh, so we were we were in Dallas and we'd moved from uh, Minnesota, and Shane was one of the first guys in Dallas. And so we started the the, the team started to market him, and he was a great guy. Uh, one one of the all one of the all-time great players in, in, in Stars history as far as popularity because he fought. He was like Twister and Chaser, and the fans yeah. loved him. And it, we had just moved to Texas, and he fought every night. And he, he really energized the base. And we had a good team. Actually, we beat St. Louis that year. I remember. You guys don't want to. But <laughs> <laughs> was Paul, Cav uh, Paul Cavallini, they yeah, got a, their, right. broke your hearts that night. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so we Shane's contract was up, and... Mike Barnett, who's a, a famous agent of Wayne Gretzky uh, and, and one of the all-time great guys in hockey, too. I've got to know him over the years, sent this. Uh, and I was doing the contracts at the time. He sent this proposal for Shane where it had X amount of dollars for tickets sold over a certain amount and, and like, a lot of things, a, a lot of nuances that wouldn't come from a player of, of, of Shane's ilk. And so I got it, and I, I'm just starting out, and I'm trying to do the contracts, and I'm reading it. It's like multiple pages, 12 pages. And 
and I showed it to Bob, and I like I'm mad. I'm like, how can he do this? You know, like like we love Shane, but Shane's role on the team is this. We got Mike Madonna, and we got these guys, and Bob's like, hey, relax. <laughs> and this is back in the days, faxes. So he says, give me a piece of paper, and he and he writes on the piece of paper, and he says, send this to him. And that's why I fax it back, and I said, Mike, sorry for the confusion. We want to sign Shane, not Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> And and, it, it, and and Mike, Mike and Bob are good friends, and so it was. It wasn't like a. Rude, there was an understanding. It was an right. understanding, <laughs> and everybody had a good chuckle about it. And we got Shane signed real quick after, but it was. Uh, That's incredible. Yeah, it's those little things that you pick up. Those, those fun things that happen behind the scenes, and it makes sports special because I'm not sure if every business you have that opportunity to. That's right. To, to yeah. rib guys the way you can rib them in a locker room or in, in, a, in a setting like that. Or on the plane, or like he told me in Washington that uh, when he looked at my sports coat that there was a horse walking around without a blanket somewhere. That's <laughs> I mean, I've well, there was a cold those, horse out there. Man, there was a cold horse out there. But We've yeah. seen some of those sports coats. He's not wrong. Listen, that's why I married. That's how I met yeah. Christy. She, she sold me a suit at the mall. That is literally how we met. So I know I know my limitations. How... how um, I, I know the answer is very intently, but how intriguing was the trade situation with the no trade clause that just happened from an impact around the general manager world to see how this would go and then maybe what what it brings to light in terms of ways to avoid things in the future? Well, we have a GM meeting next week, and I'm sure uh, the commissioner and Bill Daly will will address it. I, I think that it's, it's interesting because I, I think the understanding was you could s submit it to a team, but you didn't have to submit it to the PA in the league because I, once you once, you know once you you, you can trust me. Oh, it's there's a, leaks. Yeah, yeah you can yeah. trust me. It's a guy I tell you can't trust. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's obviously something yeah. going on because the general manager never anymore has the time to call a player about a trade. Yeah, I mean they they, they find, forget the trade deadline. I mean, it's others, and, and it's amazing how hard you try to lock things down, and it yeah. is almost impossible. So I, I, I'm going to uh, – I wasn't in the negotiations. I assume yeah. that the reason they didn't want this policy is because you don't want a certain franchise to be on everyone's no trade list. It, it's it's not good business, you know. Right. Like, nobody wants to come to your city. What, what Whatever – you pick one of the 32, whatever it is. And so they probably tried to find a way to, to keep that very hush-hush. Uh, but I, I think – I, I don't want to assume what the league's right, going to right. do. I, I would assume, <laughs> but I'm going to assume what the league's going to yeah. do. They're, they're, they're going to find a way to make sure that once you submit it, it has to go to a clearinghouse where it's put on file forever so everybody knows. Because it, it, it was a fascinating one and, and, and a challenging one to have it go through where mistakes were made, but, but also not intentional mistakes anywhere. And that, that's the, the, those are the challenges. Because sometimes... These trade calls and things that happen when it comes to salary cap and bonuses, you know, for example, and, and things and how that impacts these, they've gotten a lot more complicated, haven't they? Yeah, Sean McLeod, who runs Central Registry, he's he's got the worst job in hockey because he has to incorporate the daily rates of everybody and how how the overages and you're allowed to be over by X amount at a certain time of year and how it's going to affect your contracts and so it's. It, it, it is difficult, and with a flat cap, it's very difficult because if you look at uh, at the NHL now, over half the teams are actually playing over the cap with LTI money. So right. there, there's not a lot there's not a lot of wiggle room, and uh, 
I, I feel bad, obviously, you obviously feel bad for a player that's put in limbo if he did everything right. Yes. You feel bad for all the teams involved because nobody wants to be the headline of something that's going wrong. And uh, it's an unfortunate situation that I, I, I hope whatever the decision is by the PA and the league, that they rectify where it doesn't happen to anyone again. How have you managed to stay so so steadfast on things like either aspects of a no-trade clause or a no-move clause when they become more popular with other teams? And, and, you, and your philosophy is actually a very true and, and, and legit philosophy on it. Well, the no-trade clause, I don't have a problem with. Uh, we get those like cotton candy. Yeah. <laughs> but but no-move clause, the, move, the no-move clause is basically what I say. You basically have more power than the owner. And I don't think that's fair. I, you know... Like, if we get to the part where we, we're we better off putting you on waivers, that means this relationship has gone totally south. And if it's gone totally south, the owner has to have that ability to to put you on waivers. You to know, run his business. To run his business. Right. And, you know, it, it's just something. Now, am I going to die in that hell forever? No. <laughs> Trust me. There'll, there'll be a situation that comes up where... Where I, and I don't believe in second signing bonuses. Like, you you get a contract and you you pay for your contract. It's and it's and it's funny because it's really not that big of a deal anymore because it's the use of money. So if I give you seven million dollars today, yeah, you get the use of it for the six months. But the next six months, I get the use of only having to pay you nothing. Right. <laughs> so it's it's just little things and and, and you, you don't want to be pig-headed about it. Uh, we've been able to to run our business a certain way. Uh, but we've traded for we've traded for signing bonuses, so it's not. Uh, yeah. Again, we, we're we're trying to win. We're trying to win, and and that's where Tom is great is that he wants us to run run this like a business, a competitive business, but treat people fairly. Aside from tonight, I'll I'll, I'll leave the show part with this with you. Aside from tonight, how do you assess your your overall team, and not not just this one, but. But kind of the, let, let's say here in Springfield with with, with say prospects of, of also Jake Neighbors, Bolduke, and, and some other guys. Where, where do you see this organization right now? Evolving. I, I see it trying to stay current with today's NHL. Uh, probably never had this many skilled players, and I'm learning how to to manage, understand, and accept nights like tonight. And they, they, they don't taste well. Uh, you know, the ability to come from behind is something we haven't had in the past. But the amount of time we're behind is something we haven't had in the past either. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's 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 learning to to adapt to the new NHL, and and we want to find that hybrid where we have great skilled players that that have a work-based mentality. And when you see what they did against Washington, and we see what they did against both Ranger games, right. the one we lost, like you, you, you don't. It was a hell of a hockey game. You, you don't win every game you play good in. You know that just just it just doesn't work that way. You know the other team wants to win too, but it, it's it's getting that standard of excellence of competition of competing every night that we're we're adapting to with a new skill group. And I think it's going to take some time, uh, but I've seen Tampa do it. You know, I, you see other teams do it. We're just learning how to do it as we go through. And, yeah, there's frustrating nights with it, but there's also great rewarding nights, too, when you see it or 
when you don't have your A game, but you can score four goals. Well, you've got you've got some veteran players that learned how to win a Stanley Cup with that style. Now you've got some younger skilled players trying to come in. The veteran players have to adjust to a slightly new style too. The younger players have to figure out how to learn. And so you're going to go through natural growing pains in that. And that uh, I don't know anything but time and experience that end up teaching. Yeah, and it's adaptation for the coaches too. It's for myself. Yeah. Like we're, we're we're adapting to the new world and. It, it's hard. It's it's hard to was it, teach an old dog new tricks. Well, I'm an old dog, <laughs> and we're trying we're trying to learn a few new tricks as we move forward. All right, I lied because I'm gonna. I, I know talking about yourself is not telling stories is one thing, but talking about yourself, um, any the, your tenure with the St. Louis Blues, the winningest general manager, five hundred wins with the Blues, seven hundred wins as, as a general manager. Can and. I know it's a long way from being over here, uh, but what do those type of milestones mean in terms of the success? Like, especially even just the the ten year window in success of what you've done here in St. Louis, of making sure that this fan base is seeing competitive hockey game in game out. I, I would say that's it. It's sustained uh, success. Sustained accountability. To the to the fan base to be successful. I I, I I'm a manager. I love to read. I I, I read the blogs. You know, uh, I read Pronger 44 on, <laughs> on, on 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 the dispatch. Like there's guys that hate me. I get it. <laughs> so every time every time we win a game, I go home and see exactly what we do wrong because he's going to carve me. <laughs> but, but it fuels you a little, huh? Oh yeah, it does. It yeah. does. But I but I I love that fuel. And it's not Chris Pronger, yeah, by the way. No, At least yeah, I hope no. it's not. <laughs> I, I would think he could text you himself. That would yeah, be a great burner yeah. account if yeah. it was, though. <laughs> but it's just it's just those, uh, you know, it, it's – I just want to be thought of when, when, when I leave here that they say, you know what, he came in here, the franchise was better when he left, and we had a lot of fun going through it. And I'm hoping it's not for a while, but, you know, when my time is up, I, I hope the fans look back and say, uh, I was glad, I, you know, as, as dumb as he was, I was glad he was here. <laughs> hey, listen, there's a lot of room on that bottom ring right now at that Stanley Cup for Doug Armstrong's name, and it's a motivating factor still. It's the ultimate drive for you, isn't it? Well, it was it was 99 and 19. I said to Kelly, we can't, we can't wait till 39. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Hey, listen, I, I, I know... He, Park, parking the emotions of a game aside to come share some stories and oh, hang yeah. out with us. I appreciate it. I know Jim and Joe O'Brien always appreciate it. It's such a great spot. So thank you. Thank you so much for doing that for us, Doug. I appreciate you. I appreciate thank you guys having me on. Take care. Thank you so much, Doug. He's Doug Armstrong. Appreciate him. We'll take our final break. We'll come back and close things out here at OB Clark's for our postgame show on 101 ESPN. More Blues Talk. You're listening to the Blues Postgame Show, live from OB Clark's with Chris Gerber and Alex Ferrario on 101 ESPN. I just did it, Chris. <laughs> Come on now. Come on now. I just did it. Now I can't even lie about it either. We're back here at OB Clark's for our final time on our extended postgame show. A big thank you to Doug Armstrong for being with us tonight. Phenomenal stories from Doug. Let me ask you a question as a show host. You know, we, we get opportunities to interview guys like Doug in over five, seven minutes. You know, radio segment really has to be about 12 minutes. It's got to go over five to count for PPM and the science behind it all. <laughs> um, 
all the, the a month and a half, two months of anticipation for the trade deadline, and and all the banter on your show between you and and Tanner and and, and Brandon. Okay, as as you're going through that, do you sit here tonight actually getting into a little more detail with Doug? And you can see the ones parts where he kind of sit up more and he was getting into some of this stuff. Yeah, is it almost? I don't know. It'll change the perspective of of say the decisions you now know that have been made. Absolutely. Like, I'm curious. Like so, it's, so, so how you would as an analyst or, or a, a, a discussion um, a discussion source on the air kind of kind of approach things that way. It absolutely does because just him talking about that trade deadline with the Hampus Lindholm trade and talking about the draft picks that you gave up and the commodities of looking down the road and saying was that that trade worth the first round pick that was going to be assets for you and we've spent so much time on the air myself brandon guys on the fast lane talking about acquiring the ben Sherats and acquiring the zidano charas for the team and the assets that the teams gave up for ben Sherat, and as doug mentioned you get that player for seven weeks and after seven weeks you could be gone in 13 days and was it really worth that first round pick whereas if you were able to get the hampus lindholms those were the ones that stick there so it absolutely changes your thought process about those trade deadlines. When he acquired Yaroslav Halak from the Montreal Canadiens, so in 2010, I believe, was it the 2010? Um, I think it was that 2009 year. playoffs, wasn't it? Well, no. The um, When he acquired Yara Halak, Halak had, had took over the net for Carey Price and then goes on that run. And Montreal had a decision to make. Do we keep Price? Do we keep Halak? Sound familiar to a situation that could be coming on this end of things, isn't it? And he made the trade. Now, you know, when we talk about Doug Armstrong trades, they're legitimately right now are really only there's three players that I think that you can safely say that when when they gave up a player, it it was a like they gave up ended up being a really good player. Clearly Ben Bishop and clearly TJ Oshie. Yep. Okay. And, and and I, you know the debate. I love going back. If you could pick one of those two trades, which would you have back? You know, and uh, if 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 you don't, if you stick with Bishop, maybe the Bennington story never comes about. Who knows? If you don't trade Oshie, Troy Brower doesn't score a huge goal in Game 7 yep. that led to invaluable experience to a core that helped you win a Stanley Cup a couple of years later. Yep. Okay? Put all that into, into play. But... The one, the one that he traded that has kind of quietly gone on, not only won a Stanley Cup, but has go, is going on to play almost 800 games and be still an impactful player is Lars Eller. Yep. And it's one that, that you had to give up. Well, when he made that trade, he said during the press conference, or may, it might have been a, a conversation that the, the broadcasters had with him, he said, look, I traded for a goalie. It'll either work or it'll be a bust. <laughs> and, and and that's kind of sometimes you, you never know on the goalie side there. But uh, somebody's going to say, well, the, the Ryan Miller trade didn't. I mean, take take what he was talking about, the, the trades was Eastern Conference team made. You made the trade for Ryan Miller, yep. and you sent Halak and Stewart and a draft pick. A draft pick becomes William Carrier, and, and you get Ryan Miller and Steve Ott. Well, I know it didn't work out in the playoffs. But I don't think people should forget that Ryan Miller, his first nine games, went went yeah. nine games without a regulation loss. 
The mistake Ryan Miller made was was painting the white lead, was the, the Mike Leute white mask. Yeah, should have stayed with that. Well, it's funny you bring that up because Ryan Miller did a piece with Scott Burnside on Daily Faceoff talking about the trade deadline and how difficult mm-hmm. it is for players to uh, adapt to a team. And he said it's harder for goalies to do it because you just don't know the team and the amount of time that you're trying to adapt to the trade deadline. But he also pointed out, and I completely forget about this. And I'm sure Blues fans do as well. And he also pointed out how well he played up oh. until the playoffs. Look, you're, you're going to play in the playoffs, and you're going to have – there are so many uncontrollables. I go back to the 2003 team that was an amazing team. Yeah. And then everybody got sick. A couple key injuries that happened. And with Detroit and Colorado getting butted, punted out of the playoffs, you're like, this is the year. And then the Blues give up a 3-1 lead to Vancouver. Um, you, you, you look at – you look at the improbable run of 2019 and what that was like in January 1st being, being dead last. You, you put all that in, there's bounces. And I've, I keep the picture on the phone. Colton Pareko tries yep. to play the puck. Jamie Benn deflects it. It gets deflected on the side of the net. Because it's deflected there, Jamie Benn has a step to the inside on Pareko. A wraparound by Benn is on the goal line in double overtime. It doesn't go over the line. Joe and I think the horn's going to sound and the game's going to end in the weirdest way an NHL double overtime game has ended. It doesn't, and Pat Maroon scores. Yep. You, you just got to get – the playoffs are about some luck. I, I don't think anybody should forget. I mean, again, Ryan Miller started off undefeated in regulation in nine straight and helped the Blues with, with that positioning. It's just sometimes they're going to work and you may not get the puck luck, but he's right. Those three teams in that division gave up. Take, take the time. And just take the trade deadline trades that those two teams have made yep. and just list up what the total they all paid in terms of players and draft picks and rattle it off on tomorrow's show. Oh, yeah. And then, and he's right. Only one of those teams is going to get. And to think about one of those teams, one of those and three one of those teams. teams. Well, by the way, none of those three teams are saying, well, one of those three teams is going to get to the Stanley Cup final. No. No. Not necessarily. Yeah. I mean. Dude, that Pittsburgh Penguins team is is going to be a in a hard out. And to, to Doug's point, two of those teams are going to be out by the second round. Two of those teams will be out by the second round. There's no guarantee the third gets a, gets to the Stanley Cup yep. final. And think about the the the. Now it doesn't mean assets. you don't make those moves, but you know, but it's a it, it is a heck of a lot to pay. It, it's a fascinating that that his, he said could hurt your franchise for it, exactly because I, I mean he was very adamant about how like some of those teams within the next couple of seasons are going to be looking at rebuilding because of all of the assets they've given up. That combined with certain cap situations. Yeah. And then again, one of those teams goes all the way, wins the Stanley Cup. Their general manager was really good. Final thoughts, Curbs, 30 seconds before we close things out. Uh, Doug Armstrong talked about it. Craig Berube talked about it. He said there's just a, a little bit of cockiness on the team right now going against these bad teams, and I believe it's eight of their final 18 games are against playoff teams. Uh, I I was amazed when Doug Satterin said there's an arrogance to this yeah. team, and I don't know where it comes from. Ruby said it too. That's 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 quite a statement. Yeah, can't have arrogance against Carolina though on Saturday. They will run you out of your yes, building. Yes, they will. Curves, this was phenomenal well stuff done, tonight. Alex. Thank you. Thank you so much. Big thank you to Drew Yount for his great work here at Obi Clark's and to Jake Tennant managing things back in our studios. I'll talk to you tomorrow at 11 a.m. on BK and Ferrario. We will be back with you on Saturday. Blues and Hurricanes first community credit union pregame starts at six. Have a great night, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow on 101 ESPN. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. 
You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.